Hello and welcome to Your Money. If you have a financial question for today's speakers, you can call this number 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's one eight 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 six advice You can also email your questions to yourmoneyatwealthenhancement.com. And I am Susie Jones, along with Bruce Helmer. You can call or text us over the next hour at 651-461-9226. Now, once again, here is the founder of Wealth Enhancement Group, financial advisor, Bruce Helmer. Hey, Bruce. Hey, thank you, Susie Jones. Good to be with you. And uh, uh, Susie, as you know, and I'll tell listeners here in a second, Peg Webb is uh, taking a well-deserved day off, but we're very fortunate to have with us today Kate Meyer. If you listen to the show on a fairly regular basis, you've heard Kate's voice before. Kate uh, is the uh, High Net Worth Planning Director at Wealth Enhancement Group. She's a valued member of our roundtable team of specialists. Uh, she's a, a JD and a CFP. Uh, she likes uh, to take complex uh, estate and financial planning strategies and make them easy to understand for the average person, and she's good at doing that, as you will see today. Kate got her bachelor's degree in economics and French from Cornell College and received her Juris Doctorate from Hamlin University of Law, where she focused on estate planning, tax planning, and elder law. In addition to all this, how smart she is, uh, if, if, if Kate and I got in a rumble, she'd kick my butt. She's got a black belt in karate on top of all the intellectual firepower that she's got. Uh, Kate, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Hey, uh, Kate, there's a lot of stuff in your bio, and I won't read any more of it, but I'll just say this to listeners. With regard to high net worth financial planning strategies, if you don't know, it's not worth knowing. I'll just say that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so, yeah, I appreciate yeah, that. Well, yeah, I, I just, you know I, I mean it sincerely. I, well, no, you are, uh, uh, both Peg and I have uh, leaned on you a lot for your technical expertise over the years. Um, let's jump into this. So we, whenever we have Kate on, we tend to talk about advanced financial planning ideas or strategies things that maybe uh, you don't deal with on a daily basis. So much of our show and, and just financial stuff in general, um, I don't want to say it's basic, but it, people want to talk about investments or what the stock market's going to do and, and uh, what kind of rate of return can you get on my money. And, and those are all subsets of comprehensive financial planning, but there's so much more in terms of strategic planning that can really make a big difference in your life other than just the rate of return you get on investments. And let's talk about some of those today. And, Kate, I think maybe a good place to start, um, I purposely, whether I'm speaking in public or I'm one-on-one in a meeting, I try to avoid using the terminology estate planning. Now, that's what it's often called, but I think a lot of people, when they hear the word estate planning or words, they either think, well, it doesn't apply to me. That's something that's only for super wealthy people. Or they think, well, that's estate taxes. And again, I don't think that applies to me. But estate planning, or I prefer to actually use the term legacy planning, really is universally applicable to everybody listening right now. Talk a little bit about what we mean by that and why it applies to everybody, not just people with a lot of money. Sure. Well, that, actually, I like the term legacy planning as well because it, I think it's more descriptive because it, it enables you to 
to put the documents in place and put a plan in place that directs where you want your, your assets and the things that are important to you to go. So this doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it has to be the big mansion or the big, the big yacht you have on Lake Minnetonka. It could be the collections that you've put together during your lifetime, things that have been passed down through the family and, and you know, just your, your house, you know, little things like that. So it's, it's all important. So regardless of how many assets you have, you still want to do that planning to make sure it goes to the people you want in, in the manner that you want to pass it to them. And then there's also the part of that legacy planning also has to do with some planning of what to do during your lifetime. So if you become incapacitated, un unable to manage your own assets, or unable to make your own healthcare decisions, documents that you put together when you do your, your estate plan, your healthcare uh, directive, and your durable power of attorney, those are also very important in helping to keep your assets and your choices made in the way that you want, even during your lifetime. Um, I, I like that, Kate. Now, I always tell people that exactly what you just said, whether you have a lot or you have a little, you probably are not going to spend your last dollar the day you take your last breath. So whatever is left, where do you want that to go? And how do you get it there efficiently and effectively with least amount of tax and hassle for the loved ones or where you want that to go? And that's why I say we all need to do this type of planning. So what are some of the tools or some of the things you talk about with regard to this universally applicable legacy planning that we work with our clients on? Well, I think the thing that most people are probably familiar with is the will. So I would say that everybody who has any asset or any minor, minor family member, you know, minor children, needs to have a will because that's where you lay out who the guardians would be for your minor children. That's who you lay out, you know, where your collections are going to go. Uh, you name who's going to be the executor to manage your estate for you when you die um, and all of that. So the will is, is the most important, I think. It's, it's also uh, the most known, I think, everybody one thing to know about the will, I think a lot of people think that if they have a will that they get to avoid probate, and that is actually not true. So a will just kind of gives the direction to your, your executor to bring through probate so that you're already, you've already laid out how your assets are going to pass, which makes probate that much easier than if you have to go through via state law, which is if you die in test state or without a will. So the next step you take then, if you do want to avoid probate, would be a revocable trust. So that Basically, you can lay out the exact same terms in your revocable trust that you would, would with your will, you know, and how you want assets to pass, who you name. At this point, it wouldn't be the executor. It would be called a, the successor trustee, which would have mostly the same tasks that an executor would have. But in those cases, that doesn't go through probate. The executor just looks at the, the trust document and starts, and starts handing out the assets per the terms of the trust document. So that's kind of the difference between the will and the trust. And then, as I've mentioned previously, that durable power of attorney and healthcare directives. And then, healthcare directives, depending on the state you are, could also be known as a living will or healthcare proxy. And in those cases, you're actually naming people to do things for you if you become incapacitated during your lifetime. So, the, the durable power of attorney is what controls your assets. And so, the person who has the, it's called the attorney, in fact, has um, that control via your power of attorney, that's, they're the ones that will continue to pay your bills, continue to make sure that your investments are being handled properly, taking withdrawals from your IRAs if needed. And then the healthcare directive is, could be a completely different person, but that's the person who will make those healthcare decisions for you if you're not able to do so. 
And then in that document, you also lay out the types of decisions you'd like that person to make on your behalf. So you're able to lay out that that plan. So at, at the time you're unable to make those decisions yourself, you still have somebody doing it per the way that you would wish it to be done. Kate, as an attorney yourself, would you say anyone, any attorney today drafting a will for someone, do you, well, I'll, I'll, I'll ask this two ways. Would you say they automatically auto include um, a health care directive and a durable power of attorney when they do the will? And in your experience, is that what's being done? You, you don't see people coming in today anymore with new wills not having those documents, do you, or do you? Um, I do every now and then, and I always wonder why when I do see it happen, um, because I do. I am of the opinion when you're putting your will together, you should just put all of those documents together because they're all equally important. Every now and then I'll see somebody come in who has maybe the health care directive but not the power of attorney or vice versa. But I think, you know, when you're kind of in that mind frame of, of putting all those documents together, just do it all at once, and then you have it done. And then you can always update them later if you change your mind. And, and that's a key point. I'm glad you said that. I mean, this document is, um, if it's done right, it's clear and it's not ambiguous and it does what you want it to do. But life mm-hmm. happens and you might want to change your mind on things or there's a lot of things that could that could happen that make you need to go review these documents. Um, and and I, I think I agree with you, Kate. I think what I have found is if there's a will and not a health care directive and durable power of attorney, it's usually an old will. They haven't been to the attorney, you know, for 10 years or longer. But if they've been there more recently, I usually see it all, you know, done done, and hopefully done correctly. Um, another question I have that I think listeners might have is you, you really um, seem to make a point of uh, probate and avoiding probate, and a will does not avoid probate. What is probate, and why is it so important that people might want to avoid that process? What is it? Why is it so onerous? <laughs> well, it's not necessarily onerous. I think people hear hear the word probate and just think, you know, a horrible thing. But most of the time, it's not going to be that bad. It's just it's just the the time when um, the the executor with the court's assistance. So the probate is basically the use of the court, going through the court process to gather all of your materials, and then um, disperse it per the terms of your will, or if you don't have a will, then it would be per the terms of state law, depending on the state that you live in. And so, I mean, it can be take a little bit longer just because you have to go, you know, get it signed off by a judge and everything, but it's it, it can be expensive. I think that's what people are more worried about. The larger your estate is, the, the more expensive probate will be. But it's still, it, sometimes probate will be the better thing to do if having that court oversight in the event that you think that there's going to be um, any arguments amongst your family and all that, having that court can kind of help keep things from getting out of control. But at the same time, it, it is going to take longer just because you need to get the, the court involved, and it's, it's also a matter of public record. So anything that goes through probate, then, you know, your next-door neighbor who's always been really snoopy can then go in and look up the value of your estate. So that's kind of the main reason I think people like to avoid probate. Yeah, I think my clients that, that want to avoid probate, that's the reason why more than any other, the, pri- the privacy issue even more so, yeah. uh, I think, than the cost. So let me ask this question. Again, I, I actually know the answers to these. I'm trying to play the listener. So if a will does not avoid probate, and it sounds like it, for most people it might be attractive to avoid probate, 
and, and the living trust or the revocable trust does avoid probate, why don't we just recommend revocable trusts for everybody? Well, revocable trusts are going to be more expensive to draft because we're still going to recommend that you have that will because sometimes they're just going to be things that you either forget to put in the trust or just it's difficult to title them in your trust. And so you're going to have that will, and then you're going to have the additional cost of the trust. And then the other thing is um, having trust can be a little bit of a hassle because once you draft that trust, then you have to make sure that you retitle all of your assets into that trust, which takes time. And, and like I said, you might miss something. And then you're always having to remember to, if you're, if you're moving accounts or opening up new accounts, to remember to put them in the trust. So it can be a bit of a hassle, it's particularly upfront to have that trust. And like I said, it, um, it can be significantly more expensive to draft the trust where, you know, you might be saving that money by not having to pay probate fees. But, you know, having the expense now is always feels worse than having it later. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, that's a great explanation. And I would say the majority of my clients, and I don't ha I, I have not actually counted, so it's not scientific. It's more of a sense or a feel. I would say the majority of my clients, a simple will with a durable power of attorney and healthcare directive is sufficient for their needs. I think I have more people with wills than with trusts. But having said that, in the right circumstances, as, as you just explained why the trust is more attractive, but again, also potentially more complicated. And I think, you know, you said something really, really smart, which is not a surprise. <laughs> Kate, I have lost count over the years, how many times I've seen people that have a well-drafted living or revocable trust, and they don't have the trust properly funded. You, you're wasting your money if you go to all the right. time and trouble to get this document, and then you don't put the appropriate assets in it. Right, because then the assets have to go through probate to then be placed in the trust. So, yeah, you've, you've added that additional step, and you still haven't avoided probate. And you and you got to remember again after you draft it. Here, here's one that I see that people miss. Correct me if I'm wrong. So now now I've I've got the trust. I funded it appropriately. But again, life goes on, and a lot of my clients, as they get older, they get retired. They might get a second home or a home in in northern Wisconsin or northern Minnesota or in a warmer climate. You've got to you've got to put that new asset in and, and tell your lawyer that you've got that asset, right? Right. Yeah. Because re revocable trust only manages the assets that are actually owned by that trust. So if you have, you know, that home in Wisconsin that you forget to put in the trust, that home is still going to end up going through probate in Wisconsin while you're, everything that, that was named in your trust can avoid probate. So you have to, that is the, the key point is that you have to actually have those assets owned by the trust. So I, every now and then I'll also see people who put beneficiary designations to the trust, which is another way to avoid probate, but you're adding that, that additional step again with the beneficiary designation at death first has to title it to the trust before it gets dispersed. So it's still a little bit more convoluted than just having that trust own the asset outright. And I just want to add for everyone on, on investments and, in, and, in, in, uh, you know, your, your retirement plan, your IRA, your, your Roth IRA, your 401k, your bank accounts, you can put beneficiaries on all those accounts. And if you do, those assets will go directly to that named beneficiary and not go through the probate process, which leads some people to say, why do I even need a will or a trust? And I think the answer is, and maybe you can explain this better than I can, it's for all that other stuff. 
that you can't name a beneficiary on, and that's a lot of stuff. Right, yeah, that would still be all of your tangible assets, you know, all of your household furniture, again, I like to say collections a lot, things like that. You can't put a beneficiary designation on it. And beneficiary designations are also less flexible than having a will or a trust. So, you know, what if when you, one of your beneficiaries dies before you, where are those assets going to go? Uh, what, if, what if you have a minor beneficiary? You can't, I mean, you can't have, you can't direct how those assets should be distributed to that minor beneficiary with just the beneficiary designation. You need a will or a trust. And so I personally, I, would, I, I always say get that will or trust over doing beneficiary designations for those accounts that you don't normally put beneficiary designations on. Some of them, retirement accounts, you always want beneficiary designations on, but for your house, for your, your checking account, for your investment account that's not in an IRA, I personally like that revocable trust better just because of its flexibility. Yep, that's a great point. Okay, we, we've talked about um, revocable trust. I don't think it was you. I think it was one of the other attorneys at WEG, but years ago, it, it always stuck with me. I asked a question about a trust, and they said, Bruce, trust means nothing to me. The word that precedes trust means everything. So we've talked about revocable trust, but occasionally we use a tool called an irrevocable trust. Talk a little bit about those and how they're different and why we might use it. All right. Well, so far, we've really been talking pretty much about revocable trust. So that's when you put the assets in the trust, and you can still treat those as if you own them outright, because really you do. So you can do whatever you want with them. You can revoke that trust. You can change that trust. You can take all the money out of the trust whenever you want, because it's still your money. The irrevocable trust is, is just what it sounds like. It's once you put that money in the trust, and once you draft it, you can't change it without the big hassle. Sometimes it'll involve court, um, court involvement and stuff. So that irrevocable trust is there for assets that you personally no longer need. And that's, you know, it's there to protect, you give it, uh, put assets in an irrevocable trust for that minor child. So you can describe how that child can access that money and when it might pay to them outright. So they don't get it, you know, at age 10. Um, It's irrevocable trust can be used for estate planning purposes because anything that's owned by an irrevocable trust is not in your estate and so is not a subject to estate taxes. Um, it's there where, you know, if you're giving money to a beneficiary who might be subject to divorce or lawsuits, it, you, you put it so they have access to the money, but it's not theirs, and so it can't be reached through a lawsuit or divorce. And so irrevocable trusts have a lot of different, different purposes, but the big thing um, there is that once you draft that trust and fund it, it is very difficult to get them back, get that stuff, the money back out um, without following those trust terms exactly. Um, So it's fair to say that's something that we don't see as often as wills and revocable trusts. Right. We see it a lot, at least, you know, since I work with a lot of high net worth people, I see it used most often for estate planning purposes where the first spouse has died and left up to their estate tax exemption amount, which can be, you know, a state exemption amount here in Minnesota, it's $3 million, or the federal amount. And so that you're taking advantage of both spouses' exemption amounts um, by keeping that amount out of the surviving spouse's estate. So that's where I see it used most. And also then for trust, again, for those minor children if, if parents die, die young. 
Okay. Susie and Kate, um, we're, we're Kate My- if you're just joining us, Kate Meyer is here instead of Pig Web today, and we're talking a little bit about advanced planning uh, strategies. So, so far, Kate, we've been talking about legacy planning, estate planning strategies, but I think the other big topic that we want to hit is tax reduction or tax planning ideas, and we're coming up kind of already, time goes so fast when, when you're on because you're so informative and 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 you know i learned so much listening to you but we're, we're coming up to the end of our time so i'm going to suggest we do this susie in the second half we'll talk a little bit about some tax strategies that kate can offer some insights on and then also maybe we can let listeners uh take a uh, talk about some of the things that they want to talk about but uh, i think we kind of covered legacy planning the second half we'll talk about some tax stuff All right, very good. Uh, You are listening to Your Money, Bruce Helmer. And if you have a question anytime, even if it's not during this hour, you can call this number 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That number is 1-888-6ADVICE. Also, reminding you, if you have an email question, you can send that to your money at wealthenhancement.com. Reminding you, though, the next half hour, you can actually get in right now at 651-461-9226, and we will answer your text questions or your questions on the phone, 651-461. And we're back for the second half of Your Money. I'm Susie Jones with Bruce Helmer, and we are taking your calls and texts at 651-461-9226 about trusts. Bruce, do you want to have a question or do you want to continue on with your conversation with our special guest? Well, let's do the thank you, Susie. Let's do this. Let's um let's let's cover a couple more things that I know Kate wants to get to and then uh, we'll let listeners take us the rest of the way with their texts and uh, maybe even some live calls. So if you if you if you joined us late, uh, we're fortunate to have with us today Kate Meyer from Wealth Enhancement Group. Kate is uh, the, the high net worth planning director at, at Wealth Enhancement Group. She's an attorney and a certified financial planner. And Kate, I won't read the whole resume again. I'll just say that with regard to high net worth financial planning, as far as I'm concerned, if you don't know, it's not worth knowing. And the first half, we talked mostly or almost entirely about legacy planning. We talked about wills, revocable trusts, irrevocable trusts, beneficiaries. Is there anything else there that you didn't hit that you wanted to? And if not, let's talk a little bit about some tax planning strategies. And if there is, let's let's get uh, and close the door on legacy planning. Sure. I just want to make one more point. I don't know. I, I actually, I know I did not make clear in the first half about, you know, the difference between uh, revocable trusts. And I mentioned making sure that you title everything in that revocable trust. I want to be clear that, you know, if you start doing that, don't move your retirement assets into that revocable trust. I know I also kind of indicated a preference for trust over beneficiary designations. When it comes to retirement assets, those beneficiary designations are key because you're not allowed to re- to um, to retitle those assets into your revocable trust because then you end up paying a whole lot of income taxes right off the bat. So I just wanted to make sure I clarified that because I know I didn't really um, mention it at all that first half. Okay, good good point of clarification. Uh, Susie tells us we've got a caller. Maybe let's take the call first and then maybe a text, and then maybe let's get into some of these tax planning strategies that I know we were going to talk about. Susie, let's uh, take a call. Very good. We have uh, Terry on the 
news line to ask a question. Go ahead. You're on the air. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. I've got a question about a trust for my friend. Um, Her parents passed away and left a trust where she received or should receive about a quarter million dollars. And this was her last parent died four years ago. And I believe her brother is the trustee. Um, But I've never been able to get a copy of the trust to read it. And um, her brother and his wife, they dish out the money kind of piecemeal when we request it. Um, So any, is there any way where I could, or she could get a copy of the trust? Is it filed legally at the court or anything like that? Thanks for the call. No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I know actually the trust does um does anywhere. But um one of the rules of the trust is that the trustee must give that trust document to the beneficiary so they know what the rights and the money are. So she should be able to I mean the, um, unfortunately, the, the remedy there, if he refuses to give her a copy of the trust document, is she basically she needs to hire an attorney to get him to do it. Because unfortunately, there's no, there's no like central area where that trust is going to be held. You might be able to contact the attorney who drafted that trust, if you know who that is, and they might have a copy of it. And since she's a beneficiary, she should be, um, they should give her a copy so she knows what her rights are in regards to that trust. Hey, two quick thoughts, uh, Susie and, and Kate. Kate, the, Terry's question, you know, is a really good one, and it really emphasizes a couple of points. That number one, even though you did a great job covering this, you know, in the time that we had in the first half of the show, there's still so many, idi- you know, idiosyncrasies and complexities that this is still very, very complicated stuff, and there's a lot of things right. that, that can happen in the real world. Um, that you just won't know the answer to without getting uh, either legal help or a financial advisor to help or both. And the other thing is, it I'm not. It, it almost sounds like Terry suspects something inappropriate is going on, and that's that's my mm-hmm. Terry didn't say that. That's my kind of reading between the lines. But my point is, is that I again I've lost count the number of times that over the years. Somebody has told me, oh, you don't need to worry about all this legal mumbo-jumbo. You know, our family would never fight about money. And I've seen families that, you know, thought they were really close and perfect families, and, and they get separated and torn apart fighting over money. So it is much better to do this planning and get it in place. And, and if you think that you're never going to have a fight about money with your family members, you are naive. I've seen it. Hundreds of times. All hey, right. Susie, do we want to take a text? Sure, let's take a text. Uh, this texture writes, we have a pour-over in our revocable trust. What does the pour-over will do? That's from Ron in Burnsville. I'll just hand that over Kate, to you guys. pour-over will. Yep. I'm glad <laughs> so Kate's here. Yeah, it goes hand-in-hand hand with, with my comment earlier about how even if you have a revocable trust, you want to also have a will to catch anything that you may have not have titled in the trust. That pour over will is, is that will you would have in that case. So that basically will take anything that doesn't, that you may not been able to put in the trust or just forgot to put in the trust. And it takes everything that might go through probate and then puts it into that trust. So then it gets dispersed through those, those terms so that you have 
you don't have two different documents kind of working against each other. That will is just there to make sure to gather up everything it needs to to put it in the trust. So it pours any money that's not in the trust into that trust at death. So that's why they call it a pour over will. All right. Another texture writes, I have two investment properties, townhomes. How can I leave them to my children when I pass on without tax implications for them? Um, Mm. Kate? That's a a difficult one. I don't know if you're talking uh, about estate taxes or income taxes. So when it comes down to it, you're not going to be able to avoid those income taxes, or your kids are not going to be able to avoid those income taxes when they they inherit it. Um, Estate tax-wise, it depends on whether or not you're married. Um, If you're married, you have a little bit more flexibility because you can leave assets, you know, half of the assets into an irrevocable trust at the first spouse's death and then the rest at the second, so you have that a little bit more estate tax planning that you don't have a single person as a single person. As a single person, it basically comes down to whether or not you actually have to worry about having a taxable estate when it comes to estate taxes. Um, and if you do, whether or not you're uh, um, willing to give up some of that, make gifts of that asset um, during your lifetime in, in order to at least avoid state estate taxes. And so that's something, not knowing exactly what your goals are and even what type of taxes you're talking about, I can't really answer in much more detail than that. But if you work with an attorney and or a financial planner, we can make sure that, you're, that you do it in at least the most tax-efficient manner you can. All right. Bruce? Hey, oh, I'm sorry, Susie. Um, so, Kate, I, I, that, that question is maybe a good segue into some of the tax planning things that we were going to talk about Anyway, but before I take you there, I just want to uh, share or mention this idea. Now, this, this, in this case, the question was rental properties, but I just had a situation within the last week from a client. There's still a lot of confusion out there about even selling a primary residence and people thinking that they're going to have to pay taxes on that gain. In fact, the commonly held belief that I found, and that was this individual, they thought that any any pro, any gain from the uh, uh, proceeds from the sale, if they applied that to their next house, that would not be taxable. But any money that they didn't and, and used for something else would be taxable. And I explained to them, no, that's not the law. That you a married couple filing jointly can exclude up to five hundred thousand dollars of gain. You don't have a taxable event unless your gain was more than $500,000. Elaborate on that a little bit for people, and also talk about uh, the the residency two out of five years, because I I know there's still confusion about this, even though this has been law for quite a while. Right. So like you said, uh, for a couple who's filing jointly, um, you know, you buy a house and you sell it 20 years later, and, and it's appreciated a lot. As long as that appreciation is under $500,000, you do not have to, to declare that gain on your tax return. For a single person, that is $250,000. So basically, if you file single, it's half of what a married couple would, which would make sense. Um, and then also, you know, if you live in your house, um, again, the two over the, over the last five years, so you lived in the house, you moved out, maybe you went up, moved up to your lake house during COVID, and you really haven't been back to your uh, your primary residence and you decide to sell it, as long as you've lived in it in two of the past five years, you can still um, you can still avoid that gain because it can still be considered your primary residence. 
And so there's some movement that you can do there. You don't have to make sure you sell it immediately after you move out of it. You still have some flexibility there and whether or not you can avoid that gain. Yeah, and we've actually coached up clients before that have multiple properties and are going to sell that, look, unless it's too disruptive to your lifestyle, if you want to live there a couple of years, you can end up selling it and avoiding the tax. And I've had a lot of clients before where that was perfectly fine with them. They they didn't mind. Uh, it wasn't a sacrifice to their lifestyle and was well worth it to them to avoid the taxes on the gains. So two out of five mm-hmm. years residency, you get that uh, tax favorable treatment. Let's talk a little bit, Kate. Let's see, tax stuff. Let's talk about Roth conversion. What is it? When do we use it? When do we not use it? When's it applicable? Talk. There's still a lot of confusion about Roth conversion, I think. Right. So Roth conversions, you kind of have two different uses for it. Um, it could be to reduce your own income taxes later on in retirement because maybe you're paying taxes now when you're in a lower tax bracket. So you can avoid, uh, you can reduce the number of required minimum distributions you have to take at age 72. Or in some cases, you might be paying that tax to convert it now so that you can leave those assets to your beneficiaries tax-free so they don't have to worry about paying tax on any IRA money that they they inherit, or at least a portion of the IRA money they inherit that you've already converted to Roth IRA. So there are kind of two different reasons for it. We usually approach it first as a way to see whether or not we can help reduce your overall taxes paid on, on IRA money. So we'll usually do it for people who have retired now but still have some time before they have to actually start taking required minimum distributions. Uh, you might, you'll likely be in a lower tax bracket now because you have more flexibility in regards to your income. And so maybe we would do Roth conversions now to fill up what the 22% tax bracket. And then therefore when you're taking RMDs at age 72, you're taking a lower amount so that hopefully you're, you're reducing how much you might pay later on in the 25 or 28% tax bracket. So we'll do that. That calculations to see what tax bracket you might be in the future versus what's now, and so we can kind of do arbitrage <laughs> and, and pay fewer taxes now. And then some people are going to be in a high tax bracket no matter what, just because you have a very high balance in your IRA assets and your IRA accounts. In that case, you might be looking at leaving assets to your children in a more tax efficient manner, because since the Secure Act passed a couple of years ago. Children in particular are more likely going to have to um, liquidate those IRAs that they inherit from you in no more than 10 years. And so if you have a million-dollar IRA, you know, it's $100,000 a year that they have to pay out, and on top of any salary they might be um, earning. So by converting that money to a Roth IRA, or at least a portion of that money to a Roth IRA, you're leaving more tax-free money to them so they don't have to take as much out in such a short period of time and pay tax on it. So those are the kind of the two different approaches we take to Roth conversions. A couple quick thoughts, Kate. Um, again, I want to remind listeners what Kate does. Kate is High Net Worth Planning Director at Wealth Enhancement Group, and we're talking about advanced planning strategies. So when Kate is looking at these Roth conversions, um, it might make sense for somebody um, if if you look at for if you do future value forecasting. And you're, 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 they have so much money in IRAs, you're going to see these big required minimum distributions. You might want to pay a little bit more tax now 
to avoid a lot of tax later. When we do the tax planning, it's not just for the short term, it's for a lifetime. Our goal is to minimize taxes over a lifetime, which might mean more taxes today. And, and sometimes that's a tough thing to sell to people, tell them, no, you should pay more taxes now than you have to. It's going to save you in the long run. That's a tough thing to do because oftentimes people want immediate gratification. Okay, let's talk about one more tax planning strategy. Let's talk about, you know, again, high net worth people that are, that are charitable and, uh, and, and an efficient way to maybe uh, still get a tax advantage for their generosity. Right. So uh, kind of going to current tax law right now, you know, people who are filing jointly have a standard deduction of 24,000. Actually, what is it now? It was 24,000 adjusted for inflation. So it's 25 something now. <laughs> um, and so when you have that, uh, combine that with a cap of $10,000 on state and local income tax deduction, it is very difficult for people unless they give a lot of money to charity every year to actually get that, that tax benefit and be able to itemize deductions to get that charitable deduction. And so we've been using donor-advised funds a lot lately. So we kind of calculate, so how much would you give to charity over, like, say, the next five years? Let's put all of that into a donor-advised fund this year so that you can actually give enough in one year to be able to itemize reductions and deductions and get that bigger tax benefit for your charitable giving. And then over the next five years, give money to your charities um, from that donor advised fund instead of out of your own cash flow. So that's kind of what we use to make sure that you can um, maximize your tax benefits for charitable giving, even in these years when it's very difficult to itemize your deductions. And donor advised funds are also very good for um, people who want to donate appreciated assets so that you can, um, instead of selling that asset and realizing the gain, you can just transfer that asset to a donor advised fund, have the donor advised fund sell it. They don't, since it's a charity, it doesn't have to realize that gain. So you basically avoid paying tax on that gain. And then you can give the money to a charity, which, I mean, you could give that asset to the charity outright but then they're the ones that have to deal with setting up the brokerage account and selling it. Whereas a donor advised fund, you're kind of doing that for the charity themselves. So you can then just give them cash and they can do what they want with it right away. So those are kind of the two biggest reasons that we use donor advised funds right now, just to maximize your, your tax benefits having to do with charitable giving. Um, Kate, and just for the record, the, the current standard deduction for a married couple filing jointly, you're, you're right, is $25,900. Um, before we close, if Susie's got any other texts, any other, let's make sure I don't want to leave you um, longing that the show's over and there was something you wanted to tell listeners that you didn't. Any, any thoughts you want to make sure you get out today before we finish with texts? Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I'm sure five minutes after we log off, I'll think of it. Let's finish with listeners. My husband is still working. This is a texture, not me. And I'm retired. I heard that I can still contribute 7,000 to my Roth IRA each year while he is still working. Can you elaborate on that, please? Ooh, good question, <laughs> Kate. Yeah, that is a good question. So as long as, assuming I'm going to go with the assumption that your husband is also contributing to his Roth IRA. So Not, yeah, you just have to each. assume that. Yep, okay. Yep. So in that case, your husband just needs to make $14,000, you know, after deductions to, to enable you both to make contributions to your Roth IRAs. 
So the IRS is going to look at you as a joint taxpayer, you know, the two of you as one taxpayer. And so it's going to look at total earned income, which in this case would be whatever your husband makes, and just make sure that with, with what he makes, there's enough for both of you to make contributions to your Roth IRA. So in this case, it'd probably be, it'd be called a spousal Roth IRA, but it's still going to be in your name. You can still use his income to make your Roth IRA contribution. And and not just retired. And, and Kate, I bet you this wasn't even the law. I bet this was before, this is showing you how old I am. I remember when the law was you could contribute to an IRA and the, and the contribution was only $2,000. And if the, the non-working spouse could put in 250, that's, that's how old I am. But now the non-working spouse can put in as much as the working spouse doesn't have anything to do with them being retired if they never worked if they were the the state you know stay-at-home caregiver or whatever it it doesn't matter you can put in as long as the total earned income like kate said was fourteen thousand or whatever the limit is on the ira they're obviously uh uh, kate taking advantage of the catch-up provision for a lot of people listening at six thousand but that that old um married you know 250 dollar thing has been gone for a long time Susie, any other questions we can sneak in? I think so. Uh, a couple different ones, a little bit off topic, but do you expect CD rates to keep rising as the feds raise interest rates? That's a great question, Kate. I know we're speculating a little bit, but what do you think will happen to savings rates and borrowing rates as the Fed raises the prime rate? Um, usually the CDs and CDs bond rates, they all follow the Fed. So as, as interest rates go up, those rates should also go up, though they always tend to be a little bit slower than interest rates. So it might still take a while, but um, I can see them starting to go up, hopefully pretty soon. It, yep. And, I, and again, this is always a two-edged sword because while increasing interest rates is good for savers, it's bad for borrowers. And maybe this is just me, but I think it's true. It seems like for 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 borrowers, the rates go up more and faster, and and, and the yes. rates we get on CDs, savings accounts, it happens a lot slower and not so much. But uh, I don't know. Maybe that's just my perception. <laughs> uh, we're almost out of time, ladies. I'm keeping an eye on the clock. Keith Meyer, thank you again so much for being on the show. Every time you're on, not only do our listeners gain and learn, but I gain and learn myself. So thank you. Susie. All right. Very good. And thanks, everyone, for listening. My name is Susie Jones. The phone number to call if you did not get your question answered is 1-888-6-ADVICE. A lot of techs did not get their questions answered. So please write this down, your money at wealthenhancement.com. You can email your question to them directly and they'll get back to you. You can also call 1-888-6-ADVICE. It's your money.